Welcome to Bottom Line's Top Dollars, a podcast about all the money things you suspect might be ruining your life. I'm Laura Boo, recording from the city of Charlottetown, which is on the island of Avegwit, unceded Mi'kmaq land, otherwise known as Prince of Rhode Island, Canada. And I'm Hadassah Damien, stateside in Brooklyn, New York, USA, on unceded Lenape land. Together, we are the ladies who crunch, longtime friends, artists, and researchers who have both somehow made careers for themselves in finance. And today, Friends, we are going to explore economics and culture of tipping. The good, the bad, the ugly, the inequitable, how it all works. So in order to dive in, Laura and I have been thinking a lot about the types of jobs that seemed really attractive when we were younger. I know for myself, I'm thinking about like my local bartender who seemed to like have the best life, right? Where they worked like three days a week, you know, always making like hundreds of dollars a shift, which to me was like total wealth and riches. I was just like, wow, like that job seems so great. Or like my friends who could clean up and like put on button downs and go work at like steakhouses and stuff and make again like hundreds of bucks a night as the servers I was like oh my god like how do I get a job like that like this is the way <laughs> you know Laura what about you Oh, yeah, absolutely. The folks who had the best jobs, when I look back, are all the workers who were compensated, at least in part, by tips. They were bartenders, they were servers, and they were sex workers. Absolutely. Anyone who had that kind of job, they were working the least and they were making the most for that small amount of time. And this was a super popular way to make your money because everyone that I knew really actually wanted to spend most of their time making art, engaging in activism, or just doing nothing and being with friends. Absolutely. Almost everyone I knew had one of these jobs that was being a server or being a sex worker. Absolutely. Strippers like did the best, you know, of, oh. of everyone. And it really was about that, like maximizing that time in to money out equation, which is why a very specific segment of these tipped jobs were so lucrative and so attractive. And it was about maximizing that time into money out equation because yeah who wants to work work is the ultimate hustle so if you can hustle the hustle you are winning right absolutely but these jobs were hard exactly yeah everyone I knew who worked these jobs they really worked their asses off like everyone who made the most money as servers they worked in busy restaurants when they worked shifts they came home exhausted you know it was not easy work I mean, those who I knew who worked full-time as servers were making very good annual livings. And those who I knew who worked part-time, they were doing it to support what they thought of as their real career, which was usually art or activism. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very hard work. But the other side of it was that sometimes these folks would go into work and they would come home and they had made nothing. The downside of tipped work. The, like, yeah, the plague of the dead shift. Exactly. You're like, oh man, I'm on Tuesday nights this week. Who's going to come in? These jobs, the more that we learned about them, or the more my friends would tell me about them, the more we start to realize that there is this opportunity. Sure, you could make Boku money, maximize that equation, you know, time in, money out. But you could also really end up with a, an equation that is not something you wanted, time in to no money out. It's really interesting to me because so many of what I thought were really fancy jobs when I was younger were like either well-paying jobs younger people can do or they were just 
jobs that folks could do that didn't require a degree and like some person in your family who knows somebody who knows somebody to get you an internship, <laughs> right? Like they're just jobs where you can go make hella money. It's really interesting to me that these types of jobs, these like potential opportunities have a lot of risks and problems built into them. So I, th I think we should go through, Laura and I have like a pretty, I think, structured list, you know, of the types of problems that these otherwise, potentially otherwise awesome jobs have. Because much unlike salaried jobs, which are regular money, these are jobs where, you know, maybe in the spring you make a couple grand a week, but maybe in the winter you're lucky if you make a couple hundred bucks a week. You know, you, your income can really go up and down, which can really mess with people. It can feel like a surprise every year or it can really, if you have a, if it's rainy one night and customers don't come out, you don't have rent money, right? Like you're really not as in control of the income coming in on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis. So that's one. Yeah. So we really started to think about what are the problems with tipping because we really wanted to focus in on this aspect of these jobs. And this isn't really talking about, you know, whether we should abolish restaurants or or we're not talking about the positives and negatives of all of sex work. Really what we wanted to focus this episode on was the economics of jobs that are at least partially compensated by tips and how that works. And in many ways, we found that the people who worked these, they were those who hustled the most and made such great money. But then we also wanted to talk about the ways in which people get hustled by tipping jobs and how the tipping jobs can potentially screw workers over. Mm -hmm. So the first one and kind of the, the one that is... And I mean, people love to talk about tipping on the internet, but sort of the most obvious is that really tipping as a way to compensate a worker is really a way of transferring some of the risks of entrepreneurship from the boss or the owner of the business onto the workers that they employ to deliver the services that that business is selling. So in many places, minimum wage has two tiers. There is your basic minimum wage, and there's what a lot of people call tipping minimum wage. And this is a minimum wage that is even lower. And the reason it is lower is because it is assumed that those workers will receive tips directly from the customers. This is the way in which this even lower minimum wage is justified. Well, yeah, we, we wouldn't want people making too much money for a day's work. So let's just lower the minimum wage here. So random customers can even it out. That's the logic behind the lower minimum wage for restaurant work. And the idea there is that, you you know, if you own a restaurant and your restaurant is subject to ups and downs, you know, you're, you're busy or you're dead. So one way to help the restaurant owner be able to manage those highs and lows is if their workers are a lot cheaper. So if there is a dead shift, the owner of the restaurant, of course, is making no money, but their costs are lower because they're paying below minimum wage to all their workers and their workers are sharing in that risk. You know, they've showed up for work, they are there, but without customers, they're making a substandard minimum wage and no tips. 
Exactly. In the case of workers who are employees, at least you are covered by employee agreements, right? But for workers who are independent contractors who aren't under an employee arrangement, so who aren't even getting that minimum wage, um, and I'm thinking of dancers or I'm thinking of folks who are working, you know, catering or like there's all kinds of jobs where you expect tips to be part of your pay. Like hairdressers sometimes. Yeah, sometimes hairdresser. It just, it goes on and on, right? Like dog walkers often, you are not only absorbing the entrepreneurial risk of the person for whose business or project you're working. So you, as a as a worker of any type, you're absorbing the risk of if that person is good at marketing, or if they've figured out their niche and can get customers in the door, you're absorbing that risk. And you're also absorbing the risk as an independent contractor to fund your own sick days, fund your own vacation pay or time off pay. Up until quite recently in the US, you could couldn't get unemployment insurance if you were an independent contractor working for someone else and your job went away. That's just another way that you're absorbing risk that an employer could hypothetically be taking on. Yeah, I mean, people don't think about the externalities of having this lower minimum wage. People think about the fact like, yeah, that means that if it's a good rate shift, I walk home with hundreds of dollars in my pockets. And if it's a bad shift, I walk home with potentially nothing. That is the most obvious starting point. But another is tips and taxation and this unemployment insurance, like you say. I find that there is this kind of conflicting motivation when it comes to tips and how you report tips to the government, at least in Canada, and it's different province by province. But in many places in Canada, tips, at least in part, if not in whole, have to be self-reported by the service staff or whoever gets the tips. Basically, what comes out on your the report that gets filed with the government, which we call a T4 here in Canada, that's usually just your base wage. And maybe, depending on which province you're in, there might be, they might have some regulations about the employer tracking your sales and then making an assumption about, you know, they assume that you get at least 10% of your sales in tips and then you're taxed on that additional 10% of income, for example. But in some provinces, you have to actually completely self-report them, which means that the motivation for most servers is to under-report how much they make in tips or report almost nothing in tips so that they don't have to pay as much income tax. But the downside of that, which we learned in the pandemic is what happens if you lose your job? In Canada, the amount that you receive in in employment insurance is usually based on how much you earned in a certain number of weeks in the past year. And so if you're underreporting your income, then your EI will also be lower. So there's kind of this, these sort of battling motivations. And when it comes down to it, if I have to pick between what if I lose my job, I want to make sure I optimize my EI versus how much tax do I want to pay right now in the present? Most people prioritize paying less taxes. Totally. And like two other things about that in the US for you to qualify for social security, which is basically like our old age country social safety net. I don't want to say pension, but it's essentially it's like the money you get from the government when you retire. You have to work for at least 14 years plus. Um, And the amount that you get paid out is based on your earnings over those 14 plus years. So the more earnings that you have over time, the higher your monthly payout in Social Security. Same here. Canada, CPP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you've been a lower earner your whole life, you're going to have a lower payout. And again, like the loss aversion in the the present moment is always stronger behaviorally 
differently than like long-term risk management loss aversion. It's just kind of how people are programmed to, to think. But if you have underreported your earnings for many, many years as a worker, later that very well could impact the amount of payout that you're going to get. So that's like one thing to think about. And one way that is starting to change just in terms of reporting and tips is that the more people, the more customers who pay by credit or debit card, who pay digitally, the more those tips are automatically digitally recorded. And so in some cases, it can be really difficult to not report your tips because there's already a digital record of the money sort of coming to the restaurant and is a digital record of that money being distributed to you at the end of the night by all of your tips being compiled to you. My sister has worked as a server since she was, oh my God, 16. And a bunch of servers at the restaurant where she works currently, there was like a flash amount of audits, like a cluster of servers at her restaurant. And that's what the government did. They came in and they asked for printout from the credit card machines. Because even if you could make the argument, say, you know, like previously when people mostly paid by cash, yes, you could pull out the register of sales, but then you have to make a wild assumption about how much are people tipping. Totally. And, you know, servers could say, you know what, here people don't tip all that good. And, you know, how can you prove that I made that money? And the government can't really charge you taxes on money that they cannot prove that you earned. Mm -hmm. But with the rise of debit and credit cards, like... most people I know now never carry cash in their pockets, which seems wild to me because I worked as a server and a tutor and I lived in a cash world forever. The idea of not having cash in my wallet is bonkers to me. I know it's stressful. But if 80 or 90% of your customers are paying by credit card, then it is very easy for the government to find out exactly how much you made in tips. Exactly. And a data point that I got from our pandemic times is that there has been a rise, this is US numbers, but from 55 to 60% of restaurant and cafe transactions being done by card up to 85 to 90% of restaurant and cafe transactions being done by card in 2020. So there was a huge transition to like what's called cashless or digital only payments for I think a lot of obvious reasons, including a big rise in people ordering online. And this is this is actually a totally other topic, you know, other podcasts, but like, you know, what's happening to the cash world and to cash itself. That's other other convo. Oh my God, we should do a whole episode about cashless businesses because I got a whole thing to say about that. They got outlawed in New York City because they're inequitable. I know. Yeah, yeah. So. I went into a business in Toronto a couple years ago and found out that they were cashless. I got into an argument with the owner about the ethics of it and you know when you pick fights that you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I do. I actually do. But so look, like world of tips, world of tips. The <laughs> Again, like Laura's saying, you know, wanting to pay less taxes now makes total sense, might be getting less and less easy to avoid. And there might be other reasons not to avoid it, to legitimize your earnings. But that's just one kind of like very government policy thing about tips. You could also think about this like other issue about tips, which is it's not just that you don't control your overall income, but you also have many bosses who are impacting how much income you might get, right? So you've got like your boss in terms of who's booking your shifts, right? Whether it's your the owner or the actual manager, there's all that. So those are people who you have to make sure that you're like doing what they want. But then you have all of your customers. You need to make them happy and get them all their things, you know, solve their problems. Yeah. Tipping culture makes it so that every single table is a boss. Every table is a boss. Yeah. And as anyone who's worked these jobs knows, some bosses are better than others, right? Some bosses, totally reasonable. Some bosses, irrational and will never be <laughs> pleased. 
right? And so you have like a stack of bosses all impacting how much money you can possibly make, which impacts how you as a worker are able to show up to work. It can slightly too dramatically reduce how authentic of a person you can actually show up to your workplace as, or whether you have to put on like a total mask to just act out the role of someone who can please all these bosses to attempt to maximize your earnings. I've only ever worked as a server at one job. I worked there for five years and it was a work a workers cooperative restaurant in Montreal called Tuski. This restaurant was really different because it was a pretty radically lefty worker centered job. And our slogan was like, pas de patron depuis 2003, like no boss since 2003. The idea was that every single worker was in essence an owner of the restaurant, which made it really different in how we interacted with our clients. Whereas in most restaurants, your tables, your clients can actually use your tip as a way to force you to do things that you don't necessarily want to do or treat you really, really badly. One thing about working at Tuski was that when clients were abusive or rude and would in those kind of situations inevitably threaten you with taking away your tip, you could say, you know what, you have no obligation to tip me, but I'm going to tell you that your behavior results in you being asked to never come to this restaurant again. And this was something that the workers agreed on. Punk as fuck. Yeah, it was a punk as fuck workplace. And everyone agreed that we didn't want to serve assholes. And so if someone treated you really badly, you could say, you know what, don't come back to Tuski anymore. And in the whole time I worked there, I think I, I there was really only one client who did this. And he went on a rant at the end of his meal about how servers are overpaid and they don't deserve tips. But that's a very unusual working condition. In most restaurants, you are asked to do whatever it takes to make sure that your tables are happy. Because if you piss off a table, now you are in double trouble because you've pissed off the boss who is now not going to pay you a tip. And if that client says that they're not coming back to the restaurant, you have now pissed off your other boss who pays you your subpar minimum wage, who now is angry at you for losing their client. So this is kind of this double grind of having everyone around you be a boss. Like on that topic and adding in like how that's amplifying during COVID, there's now this concept of um, masculine harassment, like face mask, masculine harassment, which is a term coined by the nonprofit One Fair Wage to name what's happening for a lot of servers, particularly women servers who are being asked to like show people their faces under their masks in order to get their tips, which is frankly disgusting. Like just let a worker leave their PPE on. <laughs> while you're at their restaurant, you know, this brings in both this idea of what's being asked of workers to please all of their bosses. And during COVID, what's being asked of workers who work for tips in order to make their living while trying to protect themselves while there is an airborne illness like going around. You know, and one other data point, Stripe, which is a payment processor, did an analysis of tips associated with dine-in restaurants and saw that tips were down one to 2% for dine-in and that just overall volume is down for dine-in. So we're looking at a situation where at least for restaurant workers, but I think this extrapolates to other folks who work for tips because this is like a service industry situation. The numbers indicate that tips are down, volume is down, danger is up, you have all these bosses you're, as we noted, unable to control your income. And this is just what's happening for all workers. 
right? And I think what's useful for us to think about is that like, this is not just restaurant workers. This is not just strippers. There's a whole class of jobs. And Laura, you were putting this really well that are following the restaurant model, right? This sort of piecemeal handing off the risk the income risk to the worker. Can you talk a little bit more about how you were thinking about that? That kind of model of compensation, the idea of an entrepreneur who wants to, in essence, ask their worker to join in on that risk, making at least part of their compensation variable based on client demand is a business model that is replicated outside of restaurants and strip clubs. It's replicated all over the place and not just in the form of tips. It's in the form of sales commissions for any kind of sales job where salespeople are paid a percentage of how much they bring in. It's replicated in piecework in either factories or sweatshops or other uh, work from home assembly, um, get paid by the piece that they complete. And in many ways, it is the entire basis of the gig economy where you have platforms such as Uber or Lyft and all the delivery apps in Canada. It's like a I don't know if you have the, the same ones in the States, but we have like DoorDash and uh, Skip the Dishes and Uber has also gotten into it with Uber Eats. This is folks who in essence are working all the time because they're waiting by their phone for the app to give them work. And they're taking that model. They've pushed it to the extreme where those people aren't even actually making minimum wage. They're just making the variable piece. Right. You're, you're working by the minute. And I think that there's like other models in which like various formats of sex work have digitized to get paid by the minute. You know, there's some subscription models, but there's also various, like, I mean, the classic is like phone sex models, which is very much paid by the minute. And like, can you get someone to stay on the phone longer? Da, da, da. There's all these ways in which it's like what we're seeing with tipped workers is actually really just part of the Venn diagram of precarious labor that is non-employee work experiences. We can also drill down a little bit to think about some work workers who have more specific issues. So kind of this whole idea of masculine harassment, well, that's sexual harassment, which can happen to anyone of any gender and trends towards women, right? Many a worker will know there's all kinds of sexual harassment that can take place in any type of workplace, including if you're doing sex work, you can still be sexually harassed on the job, obviously, just to name it. And then of course, there's all these like specific data points that come up that show how tipped work and restaurant work, wait for it, you're not going to be surprised, replicates racial inequality and the way that racism perpetuates throughout our societies. So there's both earnings discrepancies between white servers and servers of color. Like there's data that indicate that customers will adjust their tips based on their perceived race of the server. But that also shows up in terms of inequity in staffing. So like take a peek at, at that expensive steakhouse where you can assume that servers are making a lot of money. How racially diverse is their staff? And then it also kind of can show up in how servers perceive how customers might tip and therefore how not all, how some will interact with particular customers, right? So there's all these like racial dynamics playing out for the most part to the detriment of workers of color. What I hear a lot of people talking about more and more and more, which is abolishing tipping as a mechanism of compensation in general. Tipping is this interesting thing because tipping is a voluntary thing that people can do if they want. You can't ban a customer for leaving somebody a tip. You just can't. Like if you want to leave a tip for the person who serves you at the grocery store, you can do that. I mean, the store can have a policy about confiscating that 
tip, but they cannot stop a customer from leaving it. Tipping culture historically grew out of the idea that it was a voluntary thing that you could do in order to encourage better service, but now has become the norm so much so that like it's actually embedded into the minimum wage. The government actually assumes that everyone working at restaurants is receiving tips. That's how embedded it is into the culture. And there are movements that say we should abolish the server minimum wage and all servers should be able to get the standard minimum wage that any other worker would receive and that restaurants should increase even above that how much they pay their workers and should encourage clients to either not tip at all or only tip in special circumstances to take the tipping out of the compensation equation because tipping has become this thing that is in many ways not necessarily all that great for the server and not that fun for the client either. How many times have you had a conversation with your friends where people talk about the anxiety around tipping and whether or not they are leaving too much or not enough or what the, the conventions are if they travel. Also, the, the these worries about tipping being a mechanism for people to push their bias and racism onto each other, either servers towards their customers, you know, their racial bias will tell them these will be shit tippers, therefore I'm not going to give them as much attention as this other table or the other way around where clients will, as the data shows, trend towards tipping white servers better than Latinx servers who are the next highest tipped group than black folk. And the group that actually receives statistically the worst tips are Asian servers. Let's change gears, right? Because we've been talking for most of this time about the worker perspective, but yeah, let's talk about the customer perspective or the person leaving the tip as the buyer. I mean, I think it's interesting because the origin of tipping is back from like taverns in the 1700s in England. And it literally is an acronym to ensure promptitude. Darling, here's a farthing. But like T-I-P, to ensure promptitude. So you <laughs> you would give a tip in order to get something extra or to ensure that you would like get the thing that you wanted in a timely manner, right? Promptitude, darlings. What I think is interesting now is like as a customer, there's all this anxiety. Am I tipping right? Am I tipping enough? Because you understand that the tip is part of the worker's pay. So it's not like, oh, I'm giving this server an extra thank you. I'm like, no, I'm giving the server part of their earnings, right? And as a customer, I want to feel confident that the server feels confident that they're going to make enough money today and that I'm going to value their labor. A tip no longer to me, like as a customer, is like an extra special thank you. It's just what I know I'm expected to do and what the server is expecting is happening. Therefore, it's no longer to ensure promptitude. It's me paying someone's wages. So there's like anxiety. Am I paying someone's wages right? There's care in the sense that like I want the worker to know that they're going to get paid enough or at least I'm going to try even though I'm anxious I might do it wrong. And then there's a question. What if you did as a customer want to give an extra thank you? What if your server did go like way above and beyond? What if you had some like, you know, request you knew was extra? Do you just give a bigger tip? Do you give two tips? Here's the regular tip that I acknowledge is your salary and here's the extra because you really did go above and beyond. Thank you very much. You know, like there's all these potential anxieties that come up as a buyer with tipping. And I think that this tipping thing is one of the few places in, you know, late stage Western capitalism where we still have these uncertainties and anxieties around the exchange process. Most of capitalism for us right now 
is a super sanitized and standardized experience of consumption. Totally. You know, most people who eat meat now have never killed an animal. Most people <laughs> just go to the, the store and buy a thing in a package that bears no resemblance to that. People, most of the things that they purchase, their fast fashion clothes, their cell phones, their everything, they are very much divorced from any potential negative or or unpleasant processes that are engaged in in order to put that product into their hand. And standardized and non-negotiable pricing is one of these ways in which late stage consumer capitalism has actually increased consumption because we go into stores and everything has clearly labeled fixed pricing. You know, you know exactly how much it costs you to purchase this product at the grocery store. You go onto this website and the prices are clearly there. And those kinds of transactions remove anxiety. You have extreme amounts of certainty about how much something costs you. And therefore the purchase feels, you know, like sliding down a slip and slide. It's like greased up and you're ready to go. Whereas <laughs> I think that tipping freaks people out sometimes because they've never bartered in their life. You know, I, I think of my grandmother and how much she loved the flea market and garage sales because she was the queen of bargaining and she loved to haggle. Most people I know find haggling or any kind of interaction about variable compensation where they worry about the, the social niceties of it. They find that that's a really high anxiety transaction. And so for some people, tipping is actually a moment that, you know, and they're micro moments that cause this anxiety. And I think that it's really interesting that people are kind of pushing for or thinking about this idea of abolishing tipping. And I think that there would be some workers who are compensated by tips who would potentially be into it where they would say, you know, I would prefer to have a more stable, clear income. I am tired of being under the power and whim of all of my clients who lord this over me. I'm sure that there are legit reasons, but then I always come back to the fact that all of the servers I know, like lifelong servers, because there are people that I know who are in their 40s and are still working in restaurants as they were in their late teens. And it's not because they had no other options. It is because they make good money. It's hard work. Yes, they deal with assholes, but they also deal with nice people. And in the end, they make a great living. And a lot of them would say, if you get rid of tipping, my employer would have to pay me way more than minimum wage to keep me here. Because right now they're making 15, 20, $30 an hour or more in tips plus their hourly server's wage. So if restaurants got rid of tipping, what restaurant owner would be able able to pay a $40 an hour server wage. I mean, it's just interesting, right? There's there's two things that come to mind. First off, like we shouldn't get rid of tipping because people are anxious about the human elements of dealing with money. Like my opinion, we should actually all just really start to get more comfortable with the fact that there are people behind the dollars we're exchanging. And if we're getting a service, that's from a person. Oh my God, hells yes. <laughs> you know, and if we're getting a product, a person touched it somewhere along the way. You know, like pricing is important for 
all these other reasons, whole other topic, but like the variable element forces us to confront the true humanity of the humans behind the services and products that we're interacting with. Maybe that's actually a healthy anxiety, even though it's anxiety. Yeah, you know, so it's like from the customer point of view, tipping, we could all just learn to be better, right? And to like show up and have like better question hygiene and curiosity about money. From the worker point of view, though, yeah, like it's interesting because when I, as a customer, go to a restaurant, in my mind, I'm just adding whatever 20, 25% to whatever I'm buying. But hypothetically, the restaurant owner could just add 20, 25% to the prices and then just redistribute that to the workers. Like make tipping a standard thing where when you walk into the restaurant, you see, ah, this restaurant has a 25% tipping policy. Unless I want to pay 25% on top of the food, I should eat somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like my steak isn't 30 bucks. It's 37.50. That's how much it costs. And I'm aware that, you know, 750 is going to the worker. Okay. There's a million different ways to math it, but from a worker point of view, it's interesting, Laura, the way you were saying it, I'm like, right. Like it's almost inconceivable for us in this moment to imagine employers raising prices, customers paying higher prices and employers fairly dealing with workers in order to like move the tips through to the workers. Yeah. Because there's already so much wage theft in tips. Like how many friends have you had who work jobs where they told you that at the end of the night, their boss was splitting tips and taking a portion for the house. Right. I mean, that happens in some ways, like that is one of the key models for dancers, right? Like, and there's like a bunch of different models that like houses have, like whether like you pay a house fee to show up or you pay a percentage. But if that's not the agreement (laughs) that you've like walked into your workplace with. Or if the house fee changes or if the house fee is institutionally miscalculated. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a 100% difference between what I thought was going to happen and what you motherfuckers just did <laughs> with my money. Exactly. Um, absolutely. So look, we're, we're wrapping this up here, but it's like tipping. It forces us to have a human exchange as buyers. Sure, that's good. But as workers, there's all these variables that really put in like precarity and potential instability, along with the opportunity to make hella money, which is why people show up and do it anyway, right? And it also enables employers to, yeah, potentially lower costs, but also offset risks of either their bad choices or global pandemics um, breaking out onto their workers. Right. So final thoughts are what can we do? What are some of the options that are out there? Laura, you already brought up abolishing tips. Like how do people abolish tips? What have you seen happen? I've only ever been to one restaurant in Minneapolis when I was on a business trip where they had... Fancy, fancy. Uh, <laughs> fancy, fancy. I was uh, was when I was working as an auditor. You know, they didn't, people don't know this, but auditors get to travel an awful lot, which was a big upsell for me. But it was basically kind of a hippie restaurant where they had instituted this policy and there was lots of signage explaining their policy and it was just very clear like they published the wage that their workers were making I think that there's a lot of places that are kind of trying out different models where they are clearly telling their customers what their workers are making they are paying their workers a higher amount and the food might be more pricey but everyone has clarity about exactly what everybody is paying and or making with the idea 
idea that that'll make the interactions between employees, employers, and customers more equitable. Right. I mean, in the case of like haircuts or massage therapy, or probably like, you know, like some aspects of the sex industry, you could use the like bake the tip money into prices slash pay workers higher model, where it's like the cost of the thing is just more expensive, but no tip required. Yeah. Right. And it's like back to this transparency thing. That's what's one way to do it. But there's also, yeah, I mean, there's certainly parts of like the sex industry in particular. And I'm thinking like, you know, strip clubs specifically where like, you know, tips are part of the ritualized giving of the tip is part of the exactly the you joy know? of going to strip clubs. And, and part of the skill is like your dance moves to get the tips. I mean, look, yes, everything can be changed when <laughs> when needed. <laughs> But, you know, so there's that. There's also shared slash split tips. And so, you know, all the tips go into one pot. At the end of the night, you just divide it up by like number of hours worked per person. Bada bing. You just simple math. But like the most attractive people or the whitest people weren't the people who walked away with the most tips. It was trying to get rid of some of that inequity. Yes. You can average out against like gender and racial inequity to a point. You it By night doesn't allow you to like average out against like a shit shift. Right. So like maybe even a more equitable way would be to do, Laura, what you were saying, which is like split the tips over a week. Different coffee shop I worked at did that. Yeah, that's what we did at Tuesday. Totally. It was a way to like even out whatever Sunday night is slow and Friday night is banging, but we all made whatever we made, you know? Yeah. So there's there's the idea of either standardizing tips like we talked about. So restaurants that say, you know, tipping is still a thing, but the tipping is a standardized amount. There's abolishing tipping. You are raising the prices and raising the wages of the workers, which in a way, standardizing the tips still puts that variability onto the worker because if you're not making the sales, the worker isn't getting their tips. Whereas abolishing tipping completely and raising the worker's hourly wage says that even if the restaurant is dead, the worker is still making that higher hourly wage. That makes the situation better for the worker, but potentially makes it harder for the entrepreneur to keep their business going. Then there's these options of pooling tips either by day or by week to kind of get rid of some of the inequalities that exist in restaurants. Tips, man. You can make a lot of money. You could not. <laughs> um, pluses, <laughs> minuses, kind of a lot of minuses. And, and as we start slowly rolling back into interacting and going out, I'm going to be really interested to see like how people's experiences tipped workers bounces back and doesn't, right? Yeah, because I feel like now our viewpoint of people who work these jobs is like I I would have never thought of the word frontline worker in relation to a restaurant worker before the pandemic. So how this is all going to change in the future, unknown. Totally. Well, so curious to hear what you all think. As always, this is Bottom Line's Top Dollars. Holler to us on Instagram, holler to us via email or comment on any of our um, podcasts. It always helps us to get more folks listening when we get those comments. So thank you so much. Thank you, Laura, for an awesome conversation as well. Thank you, Hadassah. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of Bottom Line's Top Dollars a podcast made by queer punks and anti-capitalist finance professionals who, like you, don't trust money. <laughs> and are therefore obsessed with understanding it. Your hosts are the ladies who crunch. That's me, Laura Boo. 
and me, Hadassah Damian from Ride Free Fearless Money. Folks, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and review us on whatever podcast app you use. And speaking of money, if you are able, throw us a few bucks at patreon.com slash dollars. Funds from our Patreon will pay for the costs of making and distributing this podcast and if we grow this project big enough for the cost of getting help to make this. Oh, I love help and I love getting to pay for it. But other free things you can do is support us by following us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for Bottom Lines Top Dollars or Ladies Who Crunch. We also have a website where we publish show notes on our blog at ladieswhocrunch.club. Finally, if you have questions to submit for our end of season listener mail episode or feedback for us, or if you just have your own punk money stories to share, you can email us at bottomlines.com topdollars at gmail.com or just find us on one of the social media platforms and message us there. We'd like to thank our listeners and friends who have contributed to the show and especially to our researchers and idea sounding boards, Ariel Federo and Handy Levine. And remember friends, punk's not dead, but capitalism still sucks. And if what you heard in this podcast sounded familiar, you're not alone. Thanks for listening.